all you cheerful chickens, welcome back to another week of A Little Greener, a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosting team. My name is Sarah, and I am joined by my fabulous teammate, Casey, uh, our other co-host. Hi, Casey. Oh, hey. Hi, guys. How are you, Sarah? Thanks for joining me again this week. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. We're a little punchy right now, guys. Sorry. Uh, I'm I'm doing fine. I'm you know, I just broken record. It's been a long week. I'm tired. Yeah. It's almost my weekend. I am ready for it. But I always look forward to this fun evening hanging out with you, talking about nature stuff. Yeah. Speaking of long weeks, forewarning, we are gonna take next week off because we have lives Life. <laughs> <laughs> and things happen all the time. So decided to take next week off. So um, we hope you enjoy this episode and then you'll have a little break and then we will ba- be back in two weeks with another episode all about nature conservation, conservation and sustainability, sustainability. In, some <laughs> in some order. <laughs> we do say it in different orders. Do you notice that? Yes. Yeah. Cause it's sometimes so I forget what the third one is. Oh. <laughs> I mean, like I don't, but I do like my mouth gets it, but my brain isn't like, ah, sustainability or nature. I don't know, but it's really funny to me because in my head that the way that I say it is the order that it's quote unquote supposed to be in, but that's actually not, I don't think what is on our logo. (laughs) Yeah. It's on our logo. There's an official way to say it. Somehow I trained Uh, my brain the wrong way, but oh well. Where's our branding team? Anyway. (laughs) You're, we're looking at them. Yeah. (laughs) in the video screen. Sarah, how'd you do on your homework this week? Hey, what was our homework? You assigned us our our challenge or action was to use asknature.org and look up your favorite animal. Yes. Casey, once again, I assigned that challenge because I had already done it. it. So yes, I had done it in preparation for the episode. So while I have challenged myself to stop doing that. It didn't <laughs> happen last week. So I, the one that I talked about in the episode with the color change and the cuttlefish was the one that I had specifically thought of. That being said, I didn't do it this past week, but I do plan to play around with that website a lot more. I don't know if you got a chance to look at it or not, Casey, because I know you have all of the things going on in your life right now, but it is a lot of fun and super easy to just type things in and, and see what pops up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Andrew and I settled on a house this week. So now there's like all the next steps of home ownership coming forward. I only went on it briefly. I'm kind of curious about like what this full, oh, it's from the biomimicry Institute. Yeah. What I, um, you had said adaptation or like search your favorite animal. So I searched orangutans predictable. There was only one thing that came up, which has to do with biological strategies of great apes to exploit multiple resources, uh, based on our teeth. So our teeth are adapted to all sorts of different types of foods. And they've been able to show, even though we have preferred foods. So for orangutans, their preferred food is fruits. We also know that they consume tree bark and insects, and they'll even hunt in lean times and our teeth and other great apes teeth, let them do that. So I don't know how that applies to biomimicry, but I'm excited to explore more of this <laughs> website. Well, I mean, again, yeah. So some, some things are just going to be ideas. Like yeah. here's a thing that this animal or plant can do 
and it's just sort of this library of things that we can think about and be inspired by. Very cool. Thank you for that assignment and a new thing for me to explore. So I don't keep scrolling on social media. There you go. I have a question for you this week, Sarah. Yes. I saw that you went bird watching. While you were scrolling on social media? While I was scrolling on social media. I was like, ooh, Sarah posted pictures of birds. And first of all, jealous. I know Florida has all sorts of fun bird species. There were some very cute ones. I was wondering what species you saw this week. Though basically the ones that I posted were the ones that I saw. So I don't I, know what kind of birds those were. Do you was, know? <laughs> hey, I put it in the captions. Um, oh. Yes, yeah, so there was a blue gray gnat catcher, which was super cute. It's tiny little bird. And I feel very fortunate that he paused long enough for me to get a couple of pictures because I'm still very amateur, very, very amateur with my camera. So they have to slow down for me. And then there was a common yellow throat was another uh, small yellow one and pileated woodpecker. Yes. Um, did you see that they think that they've seen the ivory build yes. woodpecker? That's some new conservation news. Yes, I did see that, which is super exciting. And, you know, again, just one of those things Like I really thought people were being way too optimistic when like Same. I know I'm fish and wildlife or somebody <laughs> had, yeah. had had declared them extinct I think yes oh um, they're they're extinct like since 1940 something right. according yeah. to fish and wildlife in the IUCN yeah yes so but people were just like no I, I'm still looking like I think they're gonna be out there and I was like y'all are crazy like give it up <laughs> honestly so happy to have been proven wrong because they've said at least three, which is obviously yeah. not a lot, but hopefully enough to reproduce. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need, especially in the bird world. Like mm-hmm. you can get away with the fewer animals <laughs> in the mammal world. We get a little funky when you start to change our gene pool that much. All yeah. animals do, but birds are a little bit more resilient to that. I mean, like I'm still basically, cause I'm mad at humanity for, um, getting hunting the Tasmanian tiger to extinction (laughs) and then all the people who say that it's still around who play with my feelings (laughs) I think that's where my root of um cynicism comes from whenever someone's like actually it's not extinct like okay whatever they haven't brought me any thylacine lately um but I yeah I'm thrilled that's awesome so Yes. So no ivory build for me, but I did see the pileated, which are also pretty awesome. They're very large, which is just, I don't know why that makes it fun for me, but I guess just that they're easier to get pictures of. But all in all, it was a fairly quiet birding outing. I went out to, there's like, it's a trail called Osprey Overlook. And I did not see any osprey. It's very sad. Oh, disappointing. I heard some hawks. I heard a couple of hawks being very vocal, but I couldn't find them. But it was still nice. That's good. We have a decent enough sized pond in my dad's backyard that I've seen many species of waterfowl this Mm. week. So we have a family of Canada geese. They've got six goslings with them. They're very cute. We had a great blue heron that hangs around. There is some sort of kingfisher who is very noisy. A green heron, green backed heron nice. or green heron. 
we saw them for the first week this uh first time this last week and they like pull their feathers up on their heads so that was that was exciting for me and then we've seen two species of ducks so all sorts of waterfowl around um and waterfowl will play into our topic this week which is a bit of a bummer but i'm gonna try and make it not like super dark and you shouldn't be like super freaking out about it we're gonna talk about the avian flu that has been reported in the americas this week and if you are from not the americas it's in europe and asia too so (laughs) this applies to lots of you so i hope you'll stick around and we'll talk about it when we get to the main portion of our episode And we are back with the main portion of our episode, all about the 2022 avian flu that is going around here. Sarah, you're shaking your head. Was it 2022? I just, when you said that out loud, I was like, is it, is it really? We're like almost halfway Halfway into 2022. So yeah, time is crazy. It was actually detected in 2021 in the Americas, and it is a similar strain that's been going around Europe and Asia for a couple of years. But um, really, I think people in the mainstream are starting to hear about it now. Sarah, do you remember when it first sort of popped up in, on your radar? I started hearing about it a couple of months ago. I don't remember exactly when, but through work, we yes. had been made aware of it. Yes, that's actually how I heard about it, too, is through Andrew Andrews, a zookeeper, and they were notified of it because of biosecurity concerns. Mm-hmm. So Andrew, when he goes to work, has to change his clothes before he comes from here to going there. And we have a little bird at home. So I then took that lead and basically cut off most of my contacts with our chickens and turkey at my job. So this is very topical and we're going to talk about the implications of it. I was like, is this really conservation oriented? But we've talked about zoonotic disease before and it's something that we have to be aware of because one of the things the IPCC report said is that we are going to see possibly increasing zoonotic diseases um, as vectors like mosquitoes will become potentially more prevalent with warmer seasons. Other insects will be killed off in the wintertime. So it's going to continue to be on our radar. And let's be honest, like COVID-19, we're pretty sure is a zoonotic disease. And so I want to say right up front that there is no evidence that says this is the next COVID. So if you are like shaking your boots a little bit, the last two years has scarred you like it has everybody else. I'm not going to jinx the whole world and say that, don't worry about this, but the major health institutions are not worried about this becoming the next COVID-19. There has been one confirmed case of of this bird flu in Colorado in the U.S. in a poultry worker, and that poultry worker was in the midst working directly with birds who had been infected. He had minor symptoms like fatigue, was isolated and treated with antivirals, so we because this is an influenza, do have medications that do work against this virus. Another case in the UK was with an elderly man who, quote, lived in close quarters with ducks. And I don't know what that means. (laughs) 
They're in his backyard or in his bedroom. Like I genuinely don't know where these ducks were living, but that's how the quote was. And I was intrigued by this. He had no symptoms, but tested positive for it. The CDC defines the risk to human health as pretty low and avian flus have killed people in the last 20 years. Uh, They've infected 880 people since 2003, but I think only something between like six and eight people have been reported of passing away from it. So not as zero risk to human health, but pretty low risk to human health. Yeah. And I think one of the things to keep in mind with this too, we'll, we'll talk about some of it, but this is not something that is transmissible or at least easily transmissible from person to person. And it's not something that is, it's not an aerosol transmission. It's not airborne in the way that COVID is. So that's a really, really important distinction uh, if you are feeling concerned. Also, I think the fact that you're, you're hearing it referred to as a highly pathogenic avian influenza might sound a little unnerving to people, but we'll, we'll talk about that too. Yes. There's lots of differences between this and COVID from a human perspective, especially. So we, we're just not here to be alarmist, but we want to be on the radar because this does impact animals and it's going to impact the way, um, lots of things for humans, honestly, even if it's not human health, it's going to impact other aspects of our life. So Sarah, what do you know about like the state of what's going on right now? Uh, so I, it's like I said, I'm aware of it through work. I, it's been fairly low on my radar. I haven't been following it too closely, but basically what you just said that it, this is, has been a pretty big deal, especially we're talking about poultry. So yes. domestic poultry, I know getting eggs has been a little bit more of a challenge and perhaps a bit more expensive. <laughs> Very recently here in the United States, we had this one individual, one one person infected. But this is basically right now we're talking about issues with spread among poultry. Right. So you said it earlier, it's a highly pathogenic avian influenza. So it's referred to as HPAI. Can you, I think pathogenic, highly pathogenic is a very technical term. And you're a former vet student. So can you tell us what highly pathogenic means? I mean, I don't know that that has anything to do with my ability to define a pathogenic anymore. I just, you know, I don't remember anything, but pathogenic just means that it has the ability to cause disease. A pathogen is a disease causing agent. So something that is pathogenic has the ability to cause disease. If something is highly pathogenic, then it has a strong likelihood of causing disease basically. But like I said, that I think sounds scary to us when we hear it, but when they are defining this as a highly pathogenic avian influenza, they are saying it is highly pathogenic to poultry. Birds in general. Yeah. Yeah. So don't worry about it from a human health standpoint, because it's called highly pathogenic. In this case, we're not talking about people with that high pathogenicity, but that just means that I don't, I don't know if that was correct or not, but that it just means that it is a strong disease causing agent. Uh, so it was detected in like December, 2021 in the Americas first in Newfoundland, Canada, and now in 30 States in the U S mostly the East and Midwest. And not to get too technical, but I I remember when swine flu was a big deal Mm -hmm. and it was the H1N1 virus. This is an H5N1. So it just has to do with the way the influenza is made up. There's a bunch, I 
clicked on an article that I quickly clicked out of because it was <laughs> way over my head. There are different variants yes. of this as well. You can think about it. I think actually we're all much more versed in disease language now. There are going to be mutations of this. We're going to see different strains. Um, and it is the mutating of the virus that you would potentially need to worry about if it were to become a, a bigger risk to humans. Here's where it's really starting to impact people. It has been confirmed in 160 commercial flocks and 91 backyard flocks across 30 states. And it has impacted 35.32 million domesticated birds as of Friday. This doesn't mean that 35 million domesticated birds have had it, but it means that they have been impacted by it. So they might live in flocks with other animals who had it. Symptoms of this disease strike really quickly in poultry, especially like all of a sudden you might see neurological issues in turkeys. You might see diarrhea or just like just quick, sudden death and really detecting this disease has come with seeing high rates of death within poultry populations. They test them and they find out that, okay, someone in this flock has this avian influenza. Um, The states with the largest amount of birds impacted are Iowa, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Nebraska as of the time of this recording. And that's according to the USDA. We've also confirmed, and this is where it originally came from, that 40 species of wild birds have been confirmed of having it. This is mostly transmitted from migratory waterfowl. So this is how this is spreading. It's not aerosolized. Like you said, Sarah, it's coming through birds naturally migrating. And we did two episodes on migratory birds. If you want to understand the movements of those animals, birds migrating throughout the U S up to Canada as the summer season is coming in and they are, are passing this to other wild birds and oftentimes through their feces to these poultry. Um, so a thousand scalp Ducks. I don't know what kind of ducks those nope. are. There's a lot of ducks in the U.S., guys. 50 Canada geese and a mass die-offs of snow geese due to the virus have been reported in Florida to New Hampshire to the Great Plains. So it is pretty widespread. Also, it impacts different species of birds differently. Like, there's a lot of birds out there. There are over 10,000 species of birds on planet Earth, um, and their biologies are all different. For waterfowl, what they've found is that it sort of sits within their system for longer before impacting them. And so think about all the the geese and ducks flying over top of you. Those are the ones who are spreading it before passing away. It is a lot more deadly more quickly in than the raptors that are eating their carcasses. So this is something I worry about for the turkey vultures who live near the store or our red-tailed hawk that lives on our grounds. If they are feeding on the carcasses of these dead waterfowl. That's how it passes to them. And as they poop over top of our backyard poultry, our commercial poultry, that's how it starts to get to those poultry species. So it's not great. (laughs) You mentioned, Sarah, that it is impacting the supply of eggs. Have you seen that in real life, in your life? Work, yes. Okay. Me, I haven't bought eggs in a little while. Okay. I'll have to go. I'll have to go check out the price of eggs, but yeah, yeah, I have seen it. Yes. We're going to continue to see probably issues in the supply chain for both chicken meat and for egg supply. This is something that we have to think about when we rely on animal products as part of our diet is things like zoonotic disease. So Sarah, have you heard of us having a highly pathogenic avian flu in the U S before? 
Yes, I do remember this being a thing. Again, I don't remember exactly when, but I know that this has made the rounds in the past. Yeah, it's made the rounds in 2014 to 15. It did result in the culling of 50 million domesticated animals. So that could be chickens, turkeys, pheasants, quail, whatever you keep in agricultural spaces mostly. For that one, it was a little bit different. So they were able to track that flu and they found that it was mostly attributed in the poultry populations from poultry workers moving from one farm to another. So it was actually passed through humans, not through maybe our respiratory systems, but on your boots, on your clothing, from one poultry flock to another. And since then, we've put in a lot of biosecurity measures. The U.S. actually already has biosecurity measures as far as quarantining birds coming in from other countries, specifically for instances like this. There's a lot of government entities that are involved in tracking this and making sure that we're doing our best to contain it. Now we did an episode there about backyard birds and we like gave a lot of updates last year. Do you remember what was happening with songbirds last year? I actually can't remember exactly what the the pathogen or the agent was, but yeah, that was a thing where it was not as limited. So lots of other bird species were being impacted. So there were recommendations to take down bird feeders and all of that to help spread, to help decrease the spread uh, of that disease, which is not something that has particularly been called for with this particular disease, unless you are someone who keeps backyard poultry, or perhaps if you have a pet bird or something like that, um, to try to minimize that risk, but has not been just widespread. So if you have a backyard bird feeder, they're not necessarily recommending that you need to take that down with this one. Yeah. This is not the same thing basically that, that happened last year. I don't think they really still know exactly what happened last year, um, but that mostly impacted backyard songbirds and was trans, uh, transmissed. Transmitted. Transmitted. There we go. I was like, that's not a word. What is that? Okay. Transmitted (laughs) from one bird um, to another through social, uh, close social contact. And so that's why they had us take down our bird feeders. And when they were testing, this is actually one of the things that they tested for in the bodies of those dead birds. They specifically tested for avian influenza and they successfully ruled that out. They also ruled out West Nile virus, a bunch of other scary things that we already knew about in these bird species. So this is specifically not happening um, the same way as that bird die-off did last year. So if you're worried about feeding your backyard birds, it's not currently in any sort of recommendations, like you said, unless you've got backyard poultry to take those bird feeders down. So Sarah, what are some ways that we can try and mitigate the spread of diseases in wild birds? So, I mean, it depends on the disease, right? Like we were just talking about, so we did the monitoring of the bird feeders and taking down the bird feeders when that seemed necessary. So that's one way always that we can always just be safe is to be responsible backyard bird feeders, making sure that we're keeping our feeders cleaned appropriately, cleaning up fallen seed and all of that fun stuff. But like you said, there's a lot of agencies that are involved in looking at this too, that try to do regular testing. Again, I know around where I work, they will do some of that, uh, just sort of routine testing as well. 
folks who work in the industry, working in uh, livestock farms, poultry farms, things like that, will also take other measures. They are going to have biosecurity protocols in place in terms of equipment going in and out, shoes, clothing, uh, all of those types of things, similar to kind of what you were saying, Andrew, who has to do uh, at work. And then there are other measures that can be taken in terms of outbreaks like this, including something that we have touched upon before on the podcast, which is we've talked about culling for certain issues. Yeah. And that's what we mean, actually, when we're talking about 35 million birds being affected Mm -hmm. is once they detect this influenza within the flocks of poultry, really like (laughs) from a lot of perspectives, doesn't make sense for those farmers to keep those birds alive, um, both from a disease spreading standpoint of like making sure that it stays isolated to that particular farm. And that is the USDA recommendation for when it is discovered at these farms is culling these animals. But also like, I don't know if you guys can imagine what would happen if a farmer sent their chickens to slaughter, knowing that that bird had been exposed to HPAI. And then that came out in the news, like you wouldn't want to eat that, that meat either. Like there's, even though there's not a lot of transmission, like it's not a good PR move. It's not good for them financially, but it it is the way that also we are going to contain this virus is to, is calling these uh, flocks. So it is not great. <laughs> it is brutal work. There have been some news articles out there about just how brutal it's been on both the birds and the workers who have had to do it. It's something that we do when there's salmonella outbreaks. It is actually extremely commonplace, but this is why you are going to see increased pricing for chicken meat and for eggs, because it's, there's just going to be a supply chain issue for that. Yeah. It's such a hard thing. And we've, we've talked about it before in different circumstances. We talked about it with invasive species. It happens with wildlife populations as well. Yeah. So it's a, it is a hard, it's an ethical challenge. It's a, it is a financial business challenge yeah. for these farmers as well, but it is done. I hate to use the phrase for the greater good, but that is the idea behind it. We are trying to stamp out kind of the reservoir of this disease to eliminate it being transmitted to more farms and having, you know, increased die-off numbers because of it. But it is, it's, it's a hard thing for everyone, like you said. Yeah. And I mean, it's really important to note that keeping livestock does increase our risk of amplifying zoonotic diseases. When you have that number of animals Mm -hmm. in confined spaces, sometimes these animals are not in the best of health conditions. And when they are next to each other, there's a higher risk of transmission. And this is how we get rapidly mutating diseases. This is how we're in more close contact with these diseases because we're working directly with those animals. And so this is something that, you know, health centers, uh, even the IPCC has talked about, like, this is one of those big transmission areas for us. So it is a, an inherent risk within our industrial agricultural system, zoonotic diseases, getting passed through those agricultural centers to humans. So it is a risk built into the way that we currently have our food coming to us. And then there's also prevention. I know that a lot of zoos have posted that they're keeping their birds inside. The Philadelphia Zoo near me is one of those. Basically, if a bird, a wild bird on their grounds or even near their grounds gets found with HPAI, they might be recommended to also call their birds. And 
that might be chickens that could be endangered species. So, um, these zoos are taking the preventative measure of keeping their birds inside so that they can't be with contact with these wild birds. So if something is detected within their County or within their grounds, they are not going to have to take those measures. So that's something you might see at your local zoo. That's another way that this might impact you. Historically, HPAI actually hasn't killed that many endangered birds. It's been kind of self-limiting. Just the way that birds live their lives and the disease interacts, we've sort of had these outbreaks and then they'll go down. Um, This particular strain has been persistent within Europe and Asia for the last couple of years. So maybe we're not going to see it go away the same way that we have in the past, but it hasn't caused anybody to go extinct as far as we know. This hasn't pushed anybody closer. Now, with all of these causes, you have to think about them in concert with other risks of extinction. So when you also put disease on the same front as climate change and habitat loss and Mm -hmm. poaching and things like that, this could be a tipping point going forward for some species of birds. Uh, If those other things aren't mitigated, we're not super worried about this disease directly killing off endangered species and causing them to go extinct. However, in the past, this disease has caused other conservation issues for birds in that it demonized migratory birds. So Sarah, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I guess one of the original SARS viruses had transmitted possibly from a civet, which I don't even know how to describe a civet. It's like a cat weasel thing. Yeah. Yes. That's perfect. A cat weasel weasel. thing, (laughs) (laughs) which I think are also farmed in Asia to a certain extent. And they had passed over to humans and then they culled a bunch of civets. And there were also some just retribution killings basically to try and prevent that, that disease spread. I think when we hear like avian flu, if you thought this was coming for you, you wouldn't be so keen to hang out with birds. (laughs) There might be less, uh, move towards bird watching. And actually what, what happened is, um, when it was detected in Southeast Asia, I believe it was like 20 years ago, there were culling campaigns. There were calls to kill wild birds, destroy their nests. And there was even advocation for destroying the wetlands because that's where the birds nest, which is, uh, it's hard to, to, for me, I guess, to, to quite wrap my head around like how bad that is. Um, wetlands serve lots and lots of important functions that are beneficial to humans. I can understand where the connection can be made, where this is where these birds are nesting and we don't want them to spread diseases, but it really is shooting yourself in the foot. Yes. It's not quite a full grasp of it is it's latching onto this one thing that we're fearful of and ignoring all other consequences when looking at potential solutions. Right. And other, other species are dependent upon this. So this is important again, to point out that it has almost exclusively the avian flu passed to humans through domesticated poultry, like overwhelmingly, it has been our contact with farm animals who may have gotten it originally from wild birds, but it is that, that contact. Um, and only one recorded case was through wild birds. And it is because that wild bird was killed and someone was plucking their feathers. It was a mute swan. And that's how that person got it. So our relationship with wildlife is always, I think, a little complicated. I think that sometimes 
we forget about that disease aspect until we get to kind of crisis mode, but our relationship with wildlife, our relationship with our food systems and the merging of those two things, it's important to note that even in some of the articles I was reading, they were talking about even bushmeat is not as big a threat as this industrial agriculture is for zoonotic diseases. Like we can think about, uh, I remember early in the pandemic, they thought it was a bat that had uh, transmitted COVID and someone was like, someone ate bat soup and now we're all locked inside our houses. That's not how most of these really dangerous strains of, of diseases that impact humans end up being amplified. It ends up being a bigger issue through domesticated livestock. And so it's important to, I think, check maybe our preconceived notions and to recognize that when we clear forests for more industrial agriculture production, we are more likely also to be in contact with these diseases. Yes. I think we have a future episode on bushmeat coming your way at some point, because yeah, that line of thinking of, oh, somebody ate a bat and now that's problematic for several reasons. reasons. Uh, Yeah. So that's, it's, gosh, it riles me up a little just to hear it stated like that. But, But yeah, I think it's a good point to think about our industrial agriculture as an avenue for these zoonotic diseases. I think your comment about us being aware of these diseases is important. We do tend to wait until it's crisis mode because for myself too, when we started doing this episode, I told you, Casey, this has kind of been flying under my radar a little bit. I just, I haven't been following it and I've been aware of it, but I haven't been following it. Um, But I think it was, it is, and, and I, in my mind, we're not crisis mode. I realize the we're big not. impact that this is happening, yeah. but but I think it is good. It is good to be aware of and to really understand the reality of the situation. So not to be fearful of it, but just to be kind of understanding of what's happening and how nature, food production, human health, all of these things are so interconnected. I think also it sort of reveals our place of privilege that it's not really impacting us, right? We live in a country that has really robust testing systems. We've got several big government agencies putting a lot of resources to this so that it's not something we have to freak out about. We're able to really hopefully accurately track how prevalent this disease is and take really affirmative action to make sure that it, it stays in the bird population. One of the things that when I was doing my research was brought up as a concern is if this disease starts to spread south of our our southern border in the U.S., where some of those farms have less robust testing methods, that's when you might start to see bigger issues of transmission to human health because they don't have as robust testing systems. In the U.S., we have pretty robust healthcare access. And again, we're like also privileged enough not to, to be able to choose to not work in a poultry factory because those workers were especially impacted during the pandemic too. So this is something that we don't have to worry about personally, but lots of people would have a harder time with it. And if it keeps spreading to other countries may have a harder time with it. So it's important that you know, our, our country takes precautions. And if you live in another country in Europe, you're probably like, yeah, this is old hat. We already know what's going on, (laughs) but we'll talk a little bit in just a minute at the end of the episode about some things that you can just keep in mind that will help with the efforts to contain this disease 
Sarah, do you have anything else to add for the end of this, this portion? Nope. Thanks, Casey. It was a good discussion. So stay tuned, everyone. And we'll be back to wrap up in just a moment. All right, guys, it is the challenge portion of our episode. Each week we challenge you to take some time to act upon some part of your life that may be impacted by the topic that we're talking about today. Obviously, we talked about a lot of systems that are in place to help prevent the spread of avian flu, but there are some things just to keep in mind. And I I just figured our podcast is just one of the many tools that will be circulating around to help protect you know, our population from potentially being impacted more by this disease. So if you have backyard birds, not bird feeding birds, backyard, like chickens or turkeys or poultry of some sort, you want to really keep an eye out on the illness factor within your flock. If all of a sudden somebody's dropping over who was healthy the other day, if you're starting to see swollen eyes, purple legs, I guess is one of the symptoms of this guys. This is what I wanted during COVID. I was like, can COVID turn us like green with purple <laughs> Color spots? Changing properties. Yes. Just so I'm not like every time I have allergies thinking I'm going to kill everybody. <laughs> um, so it's purple legs apparently is part of it in turkeys. There's neurological issues. So if they're like tilting their heads to the sides, something to keep an eye out. If you're cleaning, put a mask on. If you've got birds inside, make sure you wash your hands, change your shoes, all those good deals. If you are a hunter, make sure that you are cleaning your game outside in a well ventilated area because there is still a risk of wildlife to human transmission through hunting. If you're an omnivore, make sure that you're cooking your poultry to the appropriate temperature. That's normally 165 degrees Fahrenheit (laughs) because there's again, not really a huge concern about it, but that's just the way you eliminate the chance of salmonella. (laughs) Yes. Other than not. Yes, exactly. There are other things. I'm so paranoid about that. Can I just tell you every time I cook chicken, got that meat thermometer in it. I, my mom's an amazing cook. I'm pretty sure she was a little paranoid too. I'm pretty sure our chicken was a little drier than normal (laughs) because she was just like, no, no salmonella for you, (laughs) which I appreciate. I've never had salmonella. (laughs) Um, and if you're a birder, keep an eye out for sick birds in your area. And if you do end up seeing like some bunch of dead geese or uh, a raptor that seems to have um, some neurological issues, even just like dead raptors are important to report to your state fish and wildlife or game commission, because those folks are the ones who are tracking your local diseases and they may end up coming out and testing that bird's body to make sure that you're not seeing it spread across other species. We know like in uh, our county here, a bald eagle got tested positive for it. So it really is like around (laughs) and, um, and impacting our, our bird species, but with any luck, we'll be able to contain it on the human side. And if there are any updates on the conservation side, we'll definitely give them to you in a later podcast. That's what I got, Sarah. Awesome. Thank you, Casey. Appreciate it. As always, I learned some things and it's always a, a nice chatting with you. Where can the good folks find us? Oh, everywhere. They can look us up on Facebook at a little greener podcast. They can find us on Instagram at a little greener pod. They can find us on Twitter at a greener podcast and they can send us an email 
at a little greener podcast at gmail.com and we love hearing from you yeah so send us your uh avian flu stories send us your backyard bird watching stories we want to hear I from hope you. you don't have avian flu stories though no but like maybe you're a wildlife game commissioner and you've seen it in yes. wild birds and and you've got a good story about it we want to hear about it <laughs> oh no there's prompts sure yeah okay. sure okay <laughs> thanks for listening guys we'll talk to you in two weeks <laughs> bye bye, bye.